Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to start. We're starting a new series today. Uh, it's been sort of on my mind for a week or two, and then it turned out that Linda had been thinking about the same stuff, and then the leadership of the church, the elders, are reading a book together, and sure enough, it came up in that as well, and it felt like a, a good time to address these issues. This series is called uh, The Disciplines of the Spirit. And today is an introduction to that concept, and then we'll take the next couple of months and look into what has classically been known as the the spiritual disciplines. We'll get to Mark chapter 7 in in a minute or two. If you want to do any reading around this, any time that I'm doing a series or that I'm in some books and using them to help me formulate ideas, I like to give credit to, to the authors. So if you want to do any further reading around this, you can read Dallas Willard, The Spirit of the Disciplines. You can read Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. You can read John Ortberg, The Life You've Always Wanted. And another book by a guy from Singapore whose name I struggle with. It's something along the lines of Xian Yang Tan. And he has a book on the topic as well. Um, it, is, it is a classical doctrine of the Christian life, the spiritual disciplines. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm disappointed with myself. Sometimes I do things, I say things, I hold certain mindsets and attitudes that I know are not compatible with somebody who follows Jesus. And I'm reminded that I'm a work in progress, but within me there's a yearning for more. There's a desire to be more like Christ. There's a desire to have a more lavish experience of the Holy Spirit in my life, transforming me, changing me. Paul writes in Galatians 4, and he he tells that church that he longs for Christ to be formed in them. And as church leaders, as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, we long to see Jesus formed within each of us. And in in me, myself, it's something that I long for. Jesus came and he announced that the kingdom of God has come. He announced that there's a new way to live. And yet I'm sometimes not where I want to be in my own walk with God. Sometimes I feel like occasionally I'm ticking the boxes, like I've done my readings for the day and I've prayed for a bit, but there's just still not that depth that I yearn for. The psalmist writes, I think in Psalm 42, deep calls onto deep. And there's something within each of us as as children of God that yearns for a deep connection with our Father, a greater ability to hear His voice, to know His presence, and to grow in in Christ-likeness. The primary goal of the spiritual life is human transformation, that we would be changed to become like Jesus. And it's something that we should be expecting, and it's something that we should be alarmed about if it's not happening. In church, we'll get alarmed about all sorts of things, like whether or not the building needs painted, or if there's oil in the tank, uh, things like that. We'll get alarmed about things, but we don't get alarmed enough whenever we see a lack of progress in Christ-likeness in ourselves and in others. Dallas Willard said that our rituals and our liturgy, our preaching, and all the other things that we do in church have neither individually nor collectively produced large numbers of people who really are like Christ and his closest followers through history. 
We go to services. We get preached at. We take communion. We attend prayer meetings. We sing together. But are we really being transformed? How is it that sometimes Christians can go for years and even decades and not change at all? They go through all the motions, all the stuff that church lays on. They do that, but there's no real progress in Christ-likeness or in the life of the Spirit. We are meant to be temples of the presence of God. We are meant to live lives that are profoundly different to the culture around us without withdrawing from that culture. We're meant to be transformed, but frequently it does not happen. Are you ever disappointed? Do you ever yearn for more and wish that things that you do and things that you say that you could stop doing and stop saying and that your mind and your your heart could be transformed? The problem with religion is that frequently when we lean into religious behavior, we just address what's on the outside. Let me read from Mark 7, conversation that Jesus had. In verse 14, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? It doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. Now listen to this. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of man's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. The heart of the matter is the heart. We tend to focus on the outward behavior and we try to change our outward behavior. I don't know about you, but there are times I've been frustrated with my outward behavior and I've tried to change that. And it's good to be disciplined in life about avoiding things that cause you to sin and so on. But we tend to focus on the outward behavior and trying to manage that, both for ourselves and for other people as well. But the heart of the matter is the heart. Jesus said it's out of the heart that these behaviors come. And therefore, it's the heart that needs to be changed. Do you understand? We try to change the behavior. And Jesus, I believe, would say, no, let the heart be changed. And then the behavior will change afterwards. We're very good at looking at someone who's maybe struggling with a particular issue in life. And maybe even coming alongside them and saying, let me help you fix that. Let me help you overcome that issue and that's, there's a good heart behind that, but we would be better coming alongside them and saying, let me help you come close to God and allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart and see then how other things follow. Proverbs 4.23 says, above, else, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do, whether that's positive or negative, it is all flowing from the heart. 
And it's the heart that we need to focus on. Another example, if you're in Mark, turn, turn left and go to Matthew chapter 12. There's always been a verse that I have you know, remembered reading this very early in my walk with God and reading Spurgeon's comment on it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus again addressing the religious crowd says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you all know by now that Spurgeon said, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. What's in my heart is what will overflow out of my mouth and out of my life. We focus on the outward behavior. God looks at the heart. Same thing when he was choosing a king in 1 Samuel and Samuel went to Jesse's house to meet Jesse's sons and choose a king. God said to Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I believe it's exactly the same here. We are great at looking at the externals and trying to change them when God would say, stop wasting your time and your effort and frustrating yourself in a cycle of shame and instead focus on the heart being transformed. Jesus is pretty brutal. A few chapters later in Matthew 23, he speaks to the Pharisees and it's worth going and having, having a look at it. It's, it's Jesus at, at his most or some of his most strongly pointed words in the Gospels. Matthew 23, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Now, can you imagine after you know, having your cup of coffee or whatever, or, or having your, your bowl of porridge, that you take the bowl and you wash the outside of it and you don't touch the inside? And you just leave whatever's there to sit there. Jesus says that's what you're like whenever you focus on externals and don't deal with the heart. He goes on in, in verse 27. Again, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. And he goes on to talk about hypocrisy and wickedness that's inside them. You get the point. It is not, the Christian life is not about cleaning up the outside of a person. It's about the heart being transformed. If we're just focusing on cleaning up the outside, Jesus says that's like taking a tomb and painting it with whitewash so it looks great. But inside, at its core, it is full of death. The heart of the matter is the heart. Don't neglect the heart. Don't get so frustrated with people that you're walking with or you're journeying with and they have difficulties in life with just habitual things that they're struggling with and they desperately want to break free from. Don't ignore those things. Don't overlook them. Don't stop encouraging them to aim for victory. But the way to victory is a transformed heart. It's not just changed outward behavior. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, a verse that used to bother me, uh, he said that 
if our righteousness does not surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I used to think these Pharisees are the most righteous guys in the world because they're always doing everything right and they have all these rules that they never actually break. And how can my righteousness be more than their righteousness? But Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount after that to, to, to elaborate on what he means by that because the righteousness of the Pharisees was external. It was all about what you did and how you acted, whereas he drills down into the heart. So he goes to the commandment about, about not murdering and he drills into the heart and he goes after hatred in the heart. He goes into the commandment about adultery and he drills down into the heart and goes after lust. When he says about righteousness surpassing that of the scribes and Pharisees, he means your righteousness is about your heart, not about external things. And think about David as well in Psalm 51. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when you read Psalm 51, he does not say, God, help me to not do this again. He's very repentant for what he's done. He realizes that he has sinned against God, but he's not, it, it's not so much, I don't want to ever do this again. What he prays in Psalm 51 verse 10 is this, create in me a clean heart. That's the key. And renew a right spirit within me. God, it's not just that I don't want to do this again. It's that I need a new heart. And then all the outward behavior will flow from it. Richard Foster begins his book, which is about, I think, either 40 or 50 years old this year, Celebration of Discipline. It's a classic book on this topic. And he opens it with the words, superficiality is the curse of our age. And by superficiality, he means something that is all surface and no depth superficiality is the curse of our age. Everything on the external, as long as it looks good on the outside, the inside doesn't really matter. He says, goes on in the first paragraph to say, the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. People who allow a work of God to take place in their hearts I often say the best thing that I can bring to my wife, to my family, to my job, to my leadership in church, the best thing that I can bring is a heart that is being transformed by God. A close walk with God is the most important gift I give to those around me. Go to Romans chapter 12, please, as we look on into this a little bit further. Famous verses at the start of Romans 12. Paul has previously said in Romans that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, conformed to the likeness of God's Son. God's will for your life is that you'd become like Jesus. And that's it. There's lots of other things as well, but at the very heart, he wants us to become like Jesus, to show forth the character of Christ. And at the start of Romans 12, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. So what he's going to write about is not something we do to earn favor with God. 
what he's going to write about is something we do as a joyful, thankful response to what God has done for us. So we're not trying to win brownie points with, with our Heavenly Father. We are living thankful, obedient lives in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so there are two options here. We can be shaped by the world around us, the pressure that culture puts on us, or we can be transformed from within, transformed by the renewing of our minds. That word transformed in Greek is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis, most familiar to us in the change of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Metamorphosis, transformation, complete change from one thing into another. And we will do one of these two things. We will either be conformed to the world around us or we will be transformed. There's no middle ground and there's not a little bit of both. It is one or the other. I want you to notice that be transformed is a command. Be transformed. And I want you to also notice that Paul does not say, and I love this, he does not say transform yourself because you can't do that. And I can't do that. He does not say transform yourself. All we can do and this is the heart of the disciplines of the Spirit that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of months. All we can do is position ourselves so that the Holy Spirit can transform us. Our, the command to be transformed is to put ourselves in a place where that transformation can happen, not to try to affect it ourselves. So the question is, how can I be transformed? How is my heart changed? How can I present myself to God as a living sacrifice? Well, it is through this practice or these practices of the disciplines of the Spirit. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses was going about his business one day and he saw a burning bush. Right then, he had a choice. He could either ignore it and continue to shepherd his flock and do whatever he had to do and get away home and get the feet up. Or he could turn aside and give attention to the presence of God and what God was doing. And ultimately in these disciplines, that's what we're doing. We are turning aside and we are giving attention to the presence of God. Moses has to decide to interrupt his routine and make space for God. In the land, the witch and the wardrobe, there was a wardrobe and Lucy had to choose to go through the wardrobe or she was never getting into Narnia. If any of you have been doing the reframe journey and you've done episode seven this past week, in episode seven, Bruce Hindmarsh talks about another book in the Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And at the start of that book, the children are looking at a picture on the wall. And as they look at the picture of a ship out on the sea, they start to smell the smell of the sea. Water starts coming out of the picture and then they are drawn through the frame and into the actual scene itself. But again, they had to turn aside. They had to focus their gaze on the picture. They could not just ignore it. And God is ready to transform the heart of any person who will turn aside 
and give attention to the presence of God, who will stop and look at what's going on in this burning bush. One of the authors I mentioned earlier, whose name I've pronounced once and did reasonably well, and I'm not going to pronounce again, he says there are more and more dissatisfied Christians hungering for the depths of true Christian spirituality. I guarantee you, I am certain, at least probably three quarters of you, if not more, you know what I'm talking about when, you say, when I say there's a yearning for more of God. There is a disappointment in actions and behaviors and thinking patterns that we would love to change and we're sick of trying to change them. There is a, there's a realization that there's more that we're not really connecting into the way we want. There's also the realization that we're good at the externals. We're good at whitewashing the tomb. We're good at cleaning the outside of the bowl. But we're, we, if we're being honest, we know that in the heart, which really we can only see ourselves and God, in the heart we know that all is not well and we need God to create in us a clean heart. We want a deeper relationship with him that transforms our lifestyle and empowers our ministry. And this journey requires the power of the Holy Spirit. We turn aside, we give our attention to God in the burning bush when we connect through these disciplines. What are they? The things that we're going to be looking at over the next while. There's loads of them. We'll not do all of them. There's no definitive list anywhere. But I'm talking about disciplines such as prayer, meditation on God's word, fasting, solitude, celebration, service, worship. There's lots of different disciplines of the Spirit that we, as we engage in those things, we are putting ourselves in a place where God can change us right in our hearts. And you don't do these disciplines all the time. Some of them you do, so you'd be meditating on God's Word. That should be a daily practice. And prayer, Paul talks about prayer without ceasing. But you can't fast all the time for obvious reasons, and you can't celebrate all the time. So some of these disciplines are, are, are more pertinent to certain people in certain seasons and, and others they're not. And there's a reason why I have chosen to, to refer to this as the disciplines of the Spirit rather than the spiritual disciplines. And you might think, well, there's no difference. There actually is a little bit of a difference because in our vocabulary, the word spiritual means nothing at all. It just vaguely means something to do with religion or Christianity, who knows what, or maybe some random shop near the beach where they sell weird stuff. Spirituality doesn't really mean anything in our culture. So to call them the spiritual disciplines for me is not specific enough in our culture to say what they are. Whenever Paul uses the word spiritual in his letters, He's not just talking about some vague Christian thing. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. In your Bible, when Paul writes the word spiritual, there should be a capital S because he's talking about things that are to do with the Holy Spirit. So spiritual disciplines for me just sounds like some things that religious people maybe do. Disciplines of the Spirit puts the emphasis on the fact that as I do these things, the Holy Spirit does the transformation. And that is something I'm going to emphasize throughout this, that you don't miss it. I don't do the transforming. He does it. 
I just put myself in the position where it can take, take place. No one drifts into this by accident. This is an act of the free will that we choose to position ourselves in a way that God can change us. God wants us to walk in the Spirit our whole lives and grow up into Christ. I think one of the most useful illustrations is the difference between a motorboat and a sailboat. John Ortberg uses this in his book. I'm not sure whether it's original to him. But a motorboat, obviously, you've got a motor on it and you're in control of the speed and you're in control of the rudder and you can direct it wherever you want it to go and you can put the motor on, you can put the motor off. You're in control. That's not what we're talking about. A sailboat, you've got to put up the sail and you've got to catch the wind. And the wind is the Holy Spirit. And the disciplines of the Spirit When I exercise these disciplines, I'm putting the sail up to catch the wind. It's the wind that then drives the boat forward. It's the wind that gives it power and brings progress. But I have to put the sail up and hold that again. Throughout this series, I'll use it again and again and again. This notion of as I meditate on the scriptures, I'm putting the sail up. As I pray, I'm putting the sail up. If I fast, I'm putting the sail up. If I go and exercise solitude, being alone with God intentionally, I'm putting the sail up. I'm not responsible for the wind. The wind comes, the sail's up, the sail catches the wind, and there is progress and forward movement. So I want to define a a discipline of the Spirit as any activity in life that puts the sail up and allows the wind of the Spirit to bring transformation and progress in Christ-likeness and love. Any activity that puts the sail up and allows the wind of the Spirit to bring transformation and progress in Christ-likeness and love. Ortberg also goes on to explain that this is about training rather than trying. There's a huge difference between training for something and trying to do something. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, and he says, train yourself to be godly. He doesn't say, Timothy, try harder. He says, train yourself. There is a lifestyle of training that results in godliness or Christ-likeness or having a heart that is transformed into a way that pleases God. He also writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He's talking about the games, which would have been the sort of early equivalent of the Olympics. And he says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They don't just rock up and try their best. Get off the couch, put the Pringles down, walk to the athletic track and try. They train. These guys would have trained for maybe 10 months before going to the games. And this idea of training for godliness is the disciplines of the Spirit. These things that we do that train us, as Paul says to Timothy, for godliness. He doesn't tell anyone to try harder, and neither should we. And whenever we are walking with people, or whenever we're looking at our own lives, and we see behavior that is not compatible with following Jesus, We should not be berating people or ourselves saying, try harder. It should be train yourself in godliness. Exercise the disciplines of the Spirit. 
And an important thing to understand about them as well is on their own, without the Holy Spirit, they don't achieve anything. And there is no award, there's no merit for the training. You only get the medal after the race. You do the training so that when you get to the game or you get to the race, you're able to perform and you're able to go the distance. Now, even though I'm not a Man United fan, definitely not. I used to love watching Man United. A few years ago when they were really, really good back in the time of Beckham and Scholes and those guys, they were a good football team to watch. And one of the the players that, as, as much as I just don't like Manchester United, I really liked watching David Beckham, especially when he was taking free kicks. Now that guy, when he was young in the back garden, he took free kicks day after day after day after day. Just countless. He practiced curling the ball. He practiced hitting it into the top ends. He practiced getting it right every single time. And it meant when he did that, and when he did that as a professional, when he was training, when he showed up on match day, the, you know, a lot of times when he stepped up to a free kick, you were pretty confident it was going to go in the top corner, and in it went. Now, the referee did not go to them during the match, or after the match, or before, and say, we're going to give you the points because of all the times that David Beckham took free kicks in his back garden when he was a kid. No. You get the points for winning the game, You win the game by scoring the goals. And for Beckham with free kicks, you scored the goals because you'd done the training. The training is that quiet, behind-the-scenes, disciplined life that then whenever you get to the game or you get to the race, it allows you to overflow in a way that is awarded, that there is merit in. So it's not a case of, oh, I've read so many chapters of the Bible today, or I spent so many minutes in prayer, as if those things cause God to say, well done, fair play to you, an hour in prayer, you're awesome. That is not the point. The point is that when I position myself through those things, God's Holy Spirit changes me. And when I get to the game of life, there's an overflow of love and the character of Jesus And all those external behaviors that I don't like gradually die one by one because I'm getting a new heart because I'm exercising these disciplines. In conclusion then, as we finish off, we're not going to deal with any of the disciplines themselves today. That's coming up over the next couple of months and hopefully a few of us will will take turns to take on some of the different ones ourselves. God's will in all of this and in the Christian life is that we will be transformed to be like Jesus. Hold that. The goal of the disciplines of the Spirit is not that you would become some sort of religious freak. It's not that you would become somebody who's all super spiritual and proud of themselves because of what they're able to do or not do. The goal is to transform people that they would become like Jesus. He is the goal. And he is also the example in this. We're going to see how Jesus exercised these disciplines of the Spirit himself in the Gospels. Dallas Willard says, We can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life that he chose for himself. God's will is that you become like Jesus. Jesus is the example. 
the Holy Spirit is the power. He's the agent of change and of new creation. And our part, so see what the Father wants, we see the example of the Son, we see the power of the Spirit. Our part then is to put the sail up. Our part is to engage in these things that allow the Holy Spirit to change us. And the means is the disciplines of the Spirit. I really want you to be liberated from trying harder and be liberated from those frustrating external patterns of behavior and attitude that you know, even though you maybe defend them, or even though you maybe belittle them and say, that's not really a big deal, that thing, you know in your heart it is a big deal, and you hate it, and you would love it to change. I want you to feel a sense of freedom. Stop trying to change. And instead, position yourself and put the sails up and say, Holy Spirit, I can't change that. I am sick of it. It is, does not look like Jesus. Would you come? I'm going to put the sails up. Would you come and blow your wind into the sails and transform me so that I would be more like him? So instead of being disappointed with ourselves and trying to adjust our behavior Let's allow transformation to take place. But we have that responsibility to put the sail up. But I I just emphasize vigorously, this is an act of the Holy Spirit. This is not religion. This is not legalism. This is not rules. The disciplines in themselves are worthless if the Holy Spirit does not come and blow his wind into our hearts as we exercise them. I'm going to ask Daniel just to come and pray as we start this journey. Blessings to you all. Have a good day.